All right, uh, local guy, local boy, Jeff Mickle, uh, joining me on the Big Breakfast Show Getting to Know podcast uh, today. Jeff, how are you, man? I'm doing well. Doing uh, well. Thanks I am. For, uh, thanks for reaching out and having me uh, having me as part of the podcast. Oh, I'm so happy that you uh, you had time because this is going to be great. Uh, we're going to start uh, way back in the early days, Jeff. Uh, like I said, off the top, a hometown boy. But uh, let's go back to the days of of you growing up and your your school days uh, specifically. I guess you know the uh, the early grades. Uh, what were some of the highlights that you remember growing up as a kid and and attending school? Um, well, I guess as a, as a young man, um, I was, I was, I was attending, uh, St. John's elementary school and I guess one of the earliest memories, I don't know if, if we want to start to tie it back to music right away, but, um, you know, we obviously had a music program in the schools and, you know, it's kind of the same, you know, we started off with, you know, hot cross buns on the recorder and things like that and, I remember that in grade four, I believe it was grade four, um, Mr. I think it was Ron Yanko, he was our one of our grade four teachers, and he had a bass guitar with him. Uh, he was a bass guitar player, or at least maybe it was Scott or Jeff that played, uh, their, one of their sons that played the bass guitar, and that kind of made its way into the, the music part of, of school, and I think that, you know, at the time, I guess, you know, we I obviously would have been exposed to uh, the family band, which was active at that time, well before I had joined. So, I mean, there was always kind of a, a music aspect um, in my life, whether it was, you know, known or, or maybe yet to be developed, but I was always around stuff like that. There was always music playing um, around the house. But as far as school, like once we didn't really do much musically at, uh, at that level, but I remember, you know, just having a lot of, uh, you know, we did we did kid things outside of the music realm. You know, we did uh, climbing trees and obviously things that that happened before the advent of you know all the technology. But um, even moving into like from St. John's um, Junior High, uh, the now defunct IH, uh, IHJH uh, Macleodar Junior High, they had a band program there. And I actually, maybe even before that, it was probably about grade five or grade six, um, as part of kind of my exposure to the family band aspect of things, I think I, you know, dad, um, being the guitar player in the family band, he, I remember him writing out a, a small chart of guitar chords and I had it in my top dresser drawer. And at some point, you know, I would kind of, plunk away and pick at his guitar and at some point the the time probably escapes me over the years but at some point i think i said you know maybe i maybe i want to try and and learn the guitar and you know maybe be be like dad right so um i took out that that guitar chord chart and at some point i think we ordered a an old harmony guitar out of the sears catalog and it had you know the the strings were hard to press down and <laughs> it was it was just it was a little bit more more work than i you know maybe i thought at the time but over i guess over the 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 months that followed or over the years that followed it seemed like it was something that i kind of wanted to stick with so we ended up uh, going up to Weyburn 
And we met with a fellow by the name of Cleo Coderre, which I don't know if you're familiar, but he had a music store up there called Musicraft. And I had purchased my first, um, what I would consider my first real guitar. It was a Fender Stratocaster. I think it was an 86 version, uh, an 86 Korean Stratocaster, which I still have. And that kind of became, you know, obviously it was a little bit easier to play, so it kind of made me want to practice a little bit more. And uh, from there, I think that's kind of where the, the journey on guitar started for me. But going back... Um, I guess from about the grade five or six into grade seven, um, once we got into the junior high scenario, is that that's where the band program would have started. And they didn't really have anything specific for, you know, guitar and things like that. So I, I signed up as a as a drummer. Um, and even saying that, as I as I think back to about you know starting as a drummer in in grade seven. Um, the drums for me actually started much, much earlier. I was, I probably was maybe grade two or three, maybe. Um, at some point, again, because of the family band connection, I had exposure to all various kinds of instruments and things like that. And with my, my dad's brothers, uh, Mark and Charles, they were no pun intended, instrumental in kind of exposing me to some of that, uh, like the drum and percussion side of things. Nice. So I think at one point, well, well before I had a guitar, I would have had a small, <laughs> a small set of drums. <laughs> and I remember I probably still have some of the the LPs. There was a lot of the old KTEL records um, that I would sit up and I would transcribe lyrics and I would sit there in my room and play, you know, try and copy beats to uh, you know to songs like eight six seven five three zero nine Jenny or the Marshall Tucker Band, or other... I think there was a record that, that KTEL put out, it was called Southern Fried Rock with a big egg on the cover. <laughs> and I'm sure that I must have wore that thing out playing, you know, The Devil Went Down to Georgia. So Yeah, was, that would there happen. Was, there was a lot of stuff, you know, that kind of, you know, happened in various phases that exposed me to all the different, you know, varieties of, of you know, what would become kind of the, the more broader musical musical thing for me well I, um, one thing i was thinking about here jeff as you were talking about this you've brought it up a couple of times and the phrase uh, you know the family band now at what point did you jump in and, and become part of the family band and and how does that all originate as far as the family is concerned and if you don't mind maybe you could just list off who was in that family band over all those years as well right from the time you were eight or nine or whatever year uh, however old you were at the time oh for sure um well, the, the family band itself, uh, it started out, I believe, um, if, if my memory serves me, it, start, it started out just as Auntie uh, Judy, so it would have been Judy Gowan, um, my dad, Dave, uh, his brother, Mark, and his brother, uh, Charles. And I, I've been told by, uh, by my mom that even when she, you know, when I was in the womb, that, you know, she, we, she would be in the rehearsal space in my grandma's basement, and, you know, I'd be, I, would have, I would have been exposed to, to music, you know, from before I was born, right? So at some point, I want to say it was maybe around the age of eight, oh, and I guess uh, I should go back to at, at some point, AJ, uh, AJ Gowan, Judy's, uh, Judy's son, my cousin, would have joined the band on saxophone as well. But it was, I want to say it was around probably the age of maybe 12, 
Um, there wasn't really a spot for me in in the band as far as guitar because I hadn't really progressed uh, to that that stage yet. Right. But I did have you know up to that point I did have some you know I could keep a beat I could keep some rhythm. So I was I was the tambourine guy. <laughs> I would, <laughs> nice. I would play tambourine and a couple of the a couple of songs. I think it was. Um, Oh. oh, we're going back in the memory bank here now. Well, I'm trying to think. There was there was two songs that I used to come out for, and I'd kind of sit on the side of the stage and wait for my wait for my name to be called, and everything <laughs> would would uh, would stop, and I'd come out to some claps from the the wedding or the audience or whatever it was, and did my my two little stints on tambourine, <laughs> and then I went back and I waited for the the gig to end, and I was I was the hard labor part of it, helping people load load stuff into the trailers <laughs> and whatnot. It's all part of the family, right? It is. You got to got to start early, right? <laughs> Work your way up. I but, like that. I like that. My goodness, that must have been quite a feeling, though, when you're sitting there waiting to be called on and knowing that you're now part of the band and you're coming out for a couple of tunes. Well, there was there was definitely some pressure. I mean, it's it's one of those things where you know you're you can't stop the song in the middle. You know, kind of it's the kind of the now you're on moment, right? Exactly. So. That that kind of went on for a couple of years, and then I think during that time I would have been progressing, you know, with my own practice on on guitar and whatnot. And then after I would have would have had that Fender Stratocaster and had a little bit more practice and some some experience under my belt, um, I want to say that you know I, I would have I would have kind of been gradually introduced into the like the main set to a point where over the next probably few years. Um, you know, I would have been playing, you know, maybe a whole set or all three or four sets that we would have done in various parts. Right. And at some point over that, that same time, um, there was also, there was also a keyboard aspect of it. Cause <laughs> Judy, you know, she, she, um, actually the keyboard stuff probably wouldn't have taken place until about after maybe 2000 or so. So, I mean, we're jumping, jumping around a little bit. That's all right. But the uh the guitar stuff i mean that was that was kind of the moving from the tambourine into kind of that next phase of guitar and then after that would have been um you know the the kind of sharing some duties between keyboard and guitar kind of depending on the song and what was what, kind of what was necessary so along the way with this uh, family band who was uh, who was doing most of the vocals at that time then uh, jeff um I want to say it was probably because the the family band itself, like well before I joined, it was it was more of a. I guess it was more of a wedding and dance band. I mean, they did a lot of uh, dues, like for at the teen center and other things like that. Right. And at the time, the majority of the of the of the group that was doing the vocals would have been Dad, Mark, and Judy. So one of the things, or one of the hallmarks, I guess, that was, you know, people enjoyed about coming to see the, the Mickle family band then was the three-part harmony. Um, and, I mean, if, if, you've, if, you've heard, if you've heard the phrase or if you've ever heard anyone uh, talk about groups that have, you know, kind of that family harmony, right? it's something that, I think it's something that not a lot of, not a lot of people can do naturally. Um, and maybe maybe that's not the the right way to phrase it, but it just it felt like you know the harmony that that families had was a different type of harmony than you know what other you know three people that maybe weren't part of the same family you could sing and be in harmony, but there was some 
there was something different about it when it was three people that was you know kind of around and everybody kind of knew everyone's mannerisms and and stuff like that so the the majority of the vocals were handled by dad mark and judy and at some point once i realized that you know i think i had the ability to to sing as well um i was given a couple of songs you know to kind of do my own and you know i would all i would also do background vocals at some at some intervals in between some of that stuff too ah that would have been nice you to welcome that with open arms yeah yeah <laughs> let me go let me go oh and, that's awesome yeah now i i want to shift ahead a little bit now because uh i want to get into the fact of uh you know you starting to take music more serious and uh and this might be, you know, during the the family band era or after. It doesn't matter, Jeff. But uh, at what point did uh, did all of a sudden music, uh, in your eyes, become that? Uh, you know what? This is something I'm dead serious about, and it's going to become a part of my life for the rest of my life. At what point did that transition happen? Mm, it, it's kind of tough to say. I, I think there was there was probably points along the along the timeline where. You know, it was it was one of those things where we would just like I knew that music was important. I, I didn't I didn't really realize maybe at the time how important it would have become or what it would kind of morph into. But there was a time in the early early to mid nineties where I think that, you know, the family band knew that maybe you know, maybe with, with people getting older and having kids and things like that that, you know, we hadn't really put anything down as far as recording. Um and I want to say it was around 1990. We had a fellow from Estevan here by the name of Phil Blondo, and he, either Dad or Mark or somebody, had contacted him after finding out that he had a, a small reel-to-reel machine. So he ended up coming into our uh, my parents' basement with this reel-to-reel machine, and we had a bunch of microphones set up and heavy blankets to isolate <laughs> things. And we ended up cutting uh, a, a cassette tape of some cover songs. And I think at that point, I, I don't know, if, I guess I'm, I'm speaking for others here, but I think at some point we realized that, you know, maybe we wanted to do more of that, more more of recording and just get a, getting something down, um, you know, kind of more as, as something that we could look back on at some point in our lives, right? Absolutely. So in about 97, we... Uh, we started rehearsing a few more cover songs with the intention that, you know, we wanted to maybe make a, a CD. So that would have been around the time when the Mickle family band name officially kind of changed to Generation M, uh, the M being Mickle, of course. And we went up to Buffalo Pound uh, in Moose Jaw, or just outside of Moose Jaw, and we ended up recording uh, our first official CD as Generation M called Finally, with uh, with Grant Hall out of Touchwood Studios in Regina, so that was that was kind of about the point. I think that you know if we're if we're getting to the point where we're taking music seriously enough to make a CD, that's you know that that seemed like it was kind of a little bit of a turning point. That would be pretty attractive to a, a young fellow like yourself. Yeah, and I think that looking back now, I think that part of it was was very pivotal in you know me wanting to kind of pursue some of that music outside and maybe being able to you know maybe learning how to record my own music or you know just kind of getting gathering some more information to say like if i wanted to do this how could i do this myself right so what ended up happening after that 
was in about 2000, uh, we, we had enough material that we, we thought that, you know, maybe we'd like to go back and record a second, a second CD. And at the time, we, Uncle Mark and Dad and, and myself and Charles, at that point, Judy had left the band, so uh, we had gone down to a five-piece, or from a five-piece to a four-piece. And I believe it was at that point that, that Uncle Mark had started writing some lyrics for, for songs, and we weren't really sure kind of what would happen with them. But um, it was around that time that we thought, well, maybe, you know, if we record this next CD, maybe we should include some original material. And we ended up putting out a second record in 2000 with, uh, I think it was 14, 13 or 14 songs, and over half of them were original, original songs that either Mark, uh, Charles, or, or Dad had written. So there was, uh, that was, you know, kind of a little bit of a, Another milestone, but it was kind of taking that to the next level with, you know, not just cover songs, but original material as well. Boy, that had to be a great feeling for the entire family at that point then. It was, it was pretty cool. I mean, I think uh, at, and you're, you're aware that, you know, we had approached uh, CJSL at, at one point, and I think you guys had, had supported us playing uh, How Can I Get Close on the radio back at the old station. I remember that. And, um, you know, we had some exposure online i want to say that at some point even after the first cd we had a, a cover song of uh, pink floyd's comfortably numb and back in the day there was a site called mp3.com and we had uploaded that that song to the site with as part of our profile and if i go back through all of my archives i want to say at, at some point you know we reached a, a number one position for a week or two and i mean it was it was interesting stuff i mean having you know, a, a small family band from Estevan, Saskatchewan, Canada, you know, charting on, you know, a kind of an internet chart. It was, it was again, just something that I don't think people would have really thought that would have happened. But again, it was one of those things where it's like, well, we're, you know, we have, we have this, this music, we have this talent, you know, kind of what else can we do with it, right? Yeah, Absolutely. Um, now let's let's move forward a bit more here, Jeff, as we make our way through your your wonderful web of music. Because man, you've done a lot, and uh, now let's move on to uh, the solo Jeff, and of course the uh, the uh, band Jeff that's uh, associated with uh, Hook and Nail and so on. Can you kind of walk us through that transition now, Jeff, as far as uh, all your music uh, endeavors have been? Oh, for sure. Um, so it would have been about after 2000, the, the family band, just for you know, logistical reasons and family reasons, and people were getting older and, and moving around, the, uh, the family band broke up shortly after that. And even though, you know, I think there was still obviously music in my, in my veins, so to speak, there was really no outlet for it. So having been involved in, you know, being at the studio when, when Grant was doing the mixing and the mastering, and, you know, obviously I had a lot of questions because it was, it was still something that piqued my interest. Um, in about that time or in and around that time as well, I had started to, you know, read a lot more of, you know, if I were to want to record a guitar or a set of drums, like how would we actually do that? So in 2004, 2005, um, and I guess even in, in years previous to that, I had always I had already started writing lyrics for you know various things, not really knowing where where it would go. 
so in in and around that 2005 time frame, um, I put together a, a collection of, of music that was mostly acoustic-based. Um, I didn't really have a lot of resources at the time, but I did have the ability to kind of scrape together a computer and, you know, some microphones and some rudimentary recording equipment. And I was able to record um, that uh, record that would become 2006's The Seasons, uh, which I released under my own name. Um, and that was, you know, kind of the, the next progression into that, so to speak. It was a lot of feeling songs, a lot of breakup songs, you know, things that I had written over the years, um, observing, you know, observing others and just kind of writing and kind of just getting a feel for what songwriting was like. Um, even, yeah, even, even, even at that time, it was, um, it was, it was interesting because, you know, you would play, like I'd write a song, I'd play it for somebody, and you would kind of get some instant feedback. It's like, oh, that's good, or that's not so good. And, you know, I, I think that was, you know, again, just another another milestone in uh, in what would become, you know, I guess my, my solo career, too. You know, I've always been fascinated on how songs, uh, you know, are inspired in the, in the writing of, of a song, um, and this one just comes to mind now. I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but uh, Bruce Springsteen's one of his biggest hits, "Dancing in the Dark." That particular song was written based on the fact that he was being pressured by his record company to write one more single for his "Born in the USA" album, and he was basically having writer's block, and he couldn't pen that last song. And you know, part of the part of the lyrics, you know. You can't start a fire without a spark. Yeah. You know, every day I'd get up and look in the mirror and go for a walk, and he was doing all these things to try to inspire a song, and that was the last song that he wrote that uh, the record company finally said, okay, we got it. Now we'll record and, and we'll release uh, Born in the USA. So I always find writing very interesting. Well, and it's, it's interesting, too. Like, I, I don't know if I'd ever heard that particular story but it seems like of the stories like that that I've always heard, it's it's usually the songs that are kind of, you know, it's like, oh, we need one more, you know, the record company says we need one more. It's like, ah, oh, we'll just write this song. And oftentimes that's the song that became kind of the breakout hit. Exactly. Which is, you know, it just, it's, it defies, because, you know, you as an artist, you put so much into, you know, the songwriting and this and that. And, and you know, it's like, well, I just got to come up with this uh, this chord progression and, maybe I'll write these lyrics and, you know, not really knowing that, you know, that particular song that was kind of done almost as an afterthought would be, you know, such a, such a hit like that, right? Yeah, and nobody else is even aware of it. Exactly. Now, uh, let's move on then, Jeff, to the, uh, the, the uh, crew as far as the hook and nail is concerned and on from there um, as far as the, the transition for your music there too. Well, so after... Um, after 2006, so I had written the seasons and, you know, kind of did a, a few small acoustic shows in support of that. Um, and I mean, all of, all of this time I was still trying to balance, you know, a life and a job and things like that. So music is, you know, it's, it's always been, um, I, I don't want to say secondary, but it's always been something that I'm doing, you know, it's, it's not my primary, my primary job, let's right. say, right? No, Absolutely. So there was always there's always uh, a bit of time in between because I think I would still have to have time to write and in this in this particular time frame so in between about 2006 to um, the what would become the hook and nail stuff 
I would have been still playing with uh, with our classic rock group Shattered. So we had a, a small classic rock uh, cover group that we did some original music, and you know that was that was keeping us busy on weekends and for small festivals and bike rallies and things like that. I was going to say you guys were busy for quite a number of years with that band. Yeah, probably from about I think I joined in about two thousand. And up until about, you know, 20, 2016, um, you know, that's, that's probably the time frame that we were the busiest in. And then again, just kind of due to life changes and, and kids and, and things like that, it's, you know, it's, it's dropped off a little bit, you know, and then comes the pandemic. But in between that time, uh, before 2017, I had actually, I had moved houses. I had gotten married and moved houses. And there was a certain point at point in time where, you know, there was no, I, I had no ability to record uh, anything because I just didn't have a studio space. I didn't really have things set up. But shortly after 2017, um, when I finally got the studio in my new place finished, I was approached by another one of, uh, one of the Estevan legends, Mr. Ross LeBlanc, uh, through another fellow that I was playing with. I was playing with Jim Galloway as a, as a guitar player and vocalist. And, Ross had come to me through Jim and asked if, if I had the facilities available to, to record an album for him. And I was like, yeah, well, let's, let's try that. Nice. So Ross and uh, I believe it was two others, uh, his, his little trio, they, they came for a weekend into the basement. And similar to how kind of we recorded the first Generation M stuff, everything was live off the floor. Um, <laughs> That's great. It was, it was just a real, it was a real riot. And if anybody knows Ross, I mean, he's a character, right? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, when it came to music, I mean, he had, he had a lot of stories too. He's been playing since the, you know, the thirties and forties. And he was telling me stories of, you know, getting on the, getting on a horse with his guitar and going and playing in Torquay, for example. Right? Oh goodness, man. So, oh man. So that's, that's a whole other, that's probably a whole other conversation. But it was shortly after the, the, the finishing of, of Ross's record that I did have some downtime. And uh, a couple of my, of my friends here from town, Mike, Mike Davis and Lindsay Arnold, um, Mike was very heavily involved in the music scene as well with uh, his cover band then called Black Tooth Grin. And I'd always, I'd always kind of looked up to his playing. Um, he was always a little bit better at some things or certain things that I maybe hadn't really uh, hadn't really gotten to yet. Okay. So at some point, you know, we were talking, I think he had, he had come in and during that 2017 after the uh, the Ross record we recorded one song that he had written for his uh, his wife Lindsay. And after that, I think it kind of morphed into it's like, hey, we maybe we should get together and you know, you got what kind of what, what what else you got? It's like what else what else <laughs> you got for me? Yeah. So we started writing some things, and at that time, um, I can't remember exactly how it happened, but I believe that I get I had given Lindsay a book uh, that described the uh, the Beamfade riots. And as I pull it out of my my bookcase here, it's called Beamfade: The Saskatchewan Miner Struggle of 1931 by Stephen L. Endicott. And I had given her that um, that book. And at some point after that, she, she had penned a bunch of lyrics, you know, kind of relating to the minor strike 
And, you know, we, we had made the decision to, you know, get together and record this stuff and see how it went. And that's kind of when, you know, Hook and Nail was, was born, let's say. Wow. So with those songs, um, we took, we took and, and, you know, spent a, probably about a good year uh, recording and, and mixing and mastering that stuff here and released that to, you know, to pretty, I, I don't want to, you know, get ahead of myself, I guess, but it was, it, it, it was very well received. Uh, more than, you know, I think more than we ever could have imagined. Uh, the first single that we had released in July of 2017 or 2018, I think, was called Adeline. Yep. And it was it was picked up right away by CBC Regina and one of the CBC streaming services. <laughs> and it was interesting because um, we had group discussions in, like, within the group, you know, and say, you know, we would ask each other, like, what do we define as success? You know, how do, how do we know that this is successful music? And I think that it was Lindsay that said, well, it'd be nice, you know, I would define success as having a song on CBC or CBC Radio. There you go. So after the very first thing that we had released as a band, we kind of looked at each other. It's like, okay, check. What's next? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that wasn't so tough. <laughs> no, and it's, you know, obviously that's not the way it happens for, for most groups. Right. But we had, you know, we had kind of, you know, broken into that piece where, you know, now we're we're not just, maybe recognized locally um and it went on to with two tons and ride and i believe even boomtown blues off of that record um law um, i think it was at least four of the songs had been picked up by cbc and, and played either regionally or nationally at some point so that was that was you know again more exciting and more more than we ever could have imagined well, that's some pretty nice accolades right there. And you guys, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you guys were also uh, nominated for several awards, and uh, you went down that path as well. Yeah, we ended up submitting our stuff uh, to the Sask Music Best Saskatchewan Albums of 2018. Yep. And I believe, I'd have to go back and look at my notes, but I think that we tied for number four. Um, and it was, you know, again, it was just another another little bit of validation to for us to say that, you know, we've done this and... You know, we were very grateful to the industry for for the, recogni- uh, the recognition. Right. And as part of that, you know, we did go on and and play some festivals and some other other cool venues and things like that. And I think the one of the last things that we did before the pandemic kind of shut things down is, I believe it was March of 2020. Um, we were at Telemiracle, and we we played uh, two tons on Telemiracle. Um, and then I want to say the week after is when all the lockdowns started. So it's like, well, you know, I guess, you know, that, that, and that's kind of when I think Mike and Lindsay, you know, because of the lockdowns, they kind of went off and split to do their last birds. Right. And I kind of started writing uh, what would become the new record, Back to the Moon. You know what? That's, uh, that's amazing how that kind of unfolded. Uh, like you said, it's all about timing, but... Let's talk about your your solo career now. As you mentioned, the uh, Back to the Moon, the single Cabin in the Woods, which a lot of people may not know the storyline behind that, but let's touch on that while we have some time here too, Jeff. Sure thing. So with Back to the Moon, um, a lot of the songs that that ended up being part of that record were written in part um, either, you know, on the drive to or from or at the Winnipeg Folk Festival. Um... 
the reason that that I guess is you know somewhat important is up until probably around the 2000 2001 time frame, I didn't really have exposure to a lot of folk music. And one of my good friends that I used to work with, he was originally from Winnipeg, and he said to me, you know, you should you should consider coming and volunteering at this at this festival with me. He said, I think it, there's a lot of music, and he he obviously knew that I was a musical person and. And he thought that I would really enjoy, you know, kind of some of that stuff. And he was he was 100% correct. Um, it was like stepping out of it was like stepping out of something into, you know, what I would consider the the 2000 or the modern day version of Woodstock. It was five or six thousand people in a campground, you know, very very. Uh, just very conducive to a music, a folk music environment. Nice. And then just seeing a lot of the different artists and a lot of different styles, it started to open, kind of open me up to different, I guess, different styles of writing. Um, and even even before that, you know, that would have that would have been before the the hook and nail stuff. So I, I'm sure that you know the mandolin and things that I that I played for the hook and nail record, you know, that was all kind of born out of you know, my exposure to folk music starting in at the, at the Winnipeg Folk Fest. Wow, it's just amazing how things uh, kind of unfold, eh? Yeah, and so as part of, you know, as part of the, the journeys back and forth to Winnipeg, you know, I would have some time on the drive because it's, you know, a four or five hour drive. Um, and, you know, I would, you know, kind of think of lyric ideas and dictate them into my phone or, or somehow otherwise record them. And then when I would get to Folk Fest... I'd have my guitar with me, and sitting in the campground after our shifts, I would often, you know, try and complete these songs. A lot of the songs on the record are, you know, even though it was released in 2021, they were as old as, I want to say, like 2009 or 2010 in some cases. So you're looking at a full decade before they uh, came to some kind of reality then? Yeah, at least for a couple of them. Like, the, the only thing... Um, Professor of Intuition, I think those were probably two of the oldest ones. Um, and then over over the time, a lot of the stuff was maybe a little bit newer, say maybe starting in 2013 to, to present kind of thing. And the uh, the single Cabin in the Woods, you and I have talked about this before, but that uh, that is all about you and your family again, is it not? It is. So in 1979, uh, when I was a young, a young man, younger than I am today, um, Dad had built a, a small, you know, 24 or 600 square foot cabin at my grandpa's farm north of town, and they had moved it up to the, the White Bear Resort, and we would often go there, you know, kind of as a summer getaway on weekends, and this was obviously in the days before cell phones. I mean, if, if uh, you wanted to get away and nobody was there, you'd get to the cabin and you could kind of unplug for a couple of, couple of days at least. But the cabin itself, it, it provided a lot of, you know, family memories and that kind of thing. And when I, when I was looking at this, at writing songs for this record, I don't exactly remember how that song came about. Uh, if it was just, you know, talking about maybe somebody mentioned something like Cabin in the Woods or, you know, when we, in July of 2017 or 2018, when Mom and Dad finally sold the cabin, I think it was part of probably part of that process the the reminiscing of all the memories um that kind of fueled the uh, fueled the lyrics for for that particular song 
Well, lots of memories there, as you just mentioned, uh, growing up and spending time out at uh, at, at White Bear and uh, and at the family cabin. Now, I guess uh, the one thing we should touch on quickly here, Jeff, we're getting close to being uh, wrapping things up here, but um, in in your mind, what would be your ultimate goal and your uh, your payoff going forward with your own music? What would what would Jeff Mickle like to accomplish in the next ten years? Oh, that's always the question, isn't it, Lyle? It is. It is indeed. <laughs> Absolutely. Because I'm just, and it's not something that uh, you know everybody has to answer, Jeff. But it's just picking your brain as to, you know, in the ultimate uh, in the ultimate world, and everything going just right for Jeff in the next decade. If you could just touch something and say, "This is what's going to happen," and this is what's going to make me real happy, what would that be? I'll go out on a limb and say unfettered radio success. But saying saying that, um, I think the, you know a more realistic version of that would be <laughs> you know I just I think I want to keep I, I've got songs that I'm currently working on for a new record, um, some with vocals, some without. And I think as part of you know the last couple of years, it's um, I'm taking a, a little bit of a turn and maybe turning my eye towards writing a few more instrumentals. Yeah. Maybe let, letting the music do you know some of the the talking as opposed to you know having words that actually kind of explain things. Nothing wrong with that. But um, I don't I don't really know. I, I to, to to give you a full answer to that, I don't know exactly what that means because a lot of the a lot of the stuff in the last few years has changed. Yeah, you know the way that people consume music and even even going to concerts, you know that that changed over the pandemic, and I think for a lot of artists, it also changed how they how they present work, how they you know, because there's there's a lot of artists you know even that I listen to personally that I really enjoy the recorded music. But there's no way that the artists that I enjoy would ever come to anywhere near, you know, even to Regina or Saskatoon. So I think the focus probably for me would be making music that, you know, I'd, I'd feel good about releasing. Um, and if it does happen to, uh, you know, receive some accolades or if it's, if, if it's successful at radio, I mean, that to me is always kind of a bonus. That's a, that's a good attitude to have from your standpoint. Yeah, and... You know, there is there is also that thing where I still am, you know, kind of balancing my my artistic life with a with a day job. But at some point, you know, every, as everyone gets older, you know, I'm I'm probably planning to retire at some point, and maybe at that point, maybe I take a little bit more of a dive into you know songwriting and have more time to dedicate to it specifically, as opposed to getting up at the crack of dawn and. Well, I'm not getting up at the crack of dawn. Let's let's not get ourselves. For for all intents and purposes, you know, getting up and going to a day job, you know, if if that could be replaced with, you know, four or five hours of songwriting a day, wouldn't that be nice? That would be that would be nice, and it would be maybe kind of a welcome change too. Absolutely, that'd be a great way to spend your day, Jeff. There's no doubt about it, and I know you'd love it. Yeah. Um, the one thing that, that was kind of a little bit of a surprise towards the end of last year is one of the tracks on the new record, uh, Never Had a Chance to Miss You, was, uh, was as a big surprise to me, it was uh, nominated as a semifinalist in the International Songwriting Competition. So that was, that was a little bit, you know, unexpected. But, you know, as if, if we're, you know, if I'm able to get 
or garner some recognition from, you know, not necessarily the local crowd that might know me, but from people that have no idea who I am. Um, that's also a little bit more extra validation to say that, you know, maybe I'm doing something right, whether it might not be everyone's cup of tea, let's say, but, you know, it's it's just one of those things where some of that recognition does fuel, um, you know, gives me a little bit extra oomph to keep going, you know what I mean? I was just going to say, that's the kind of stuff, Jeff, that you need to surround yourself with because that's uh, that's momentum right there. It is. It's kind of like when you go golf and the, the entire game is garbage except that last hole. It's like, well, maybe I'll try this one more time. <laughs> mine, is, mine is hitting a drive and nobody knowing where it went. <laughs> <laughs> including myself. I've even asked people, you know, stand behind me and watch this ball really close because I don't know where it's going or how far it's going to go. And you'd be you'd be surprised, Jeff, where everybody just goes, didn't see it. Yeah, it's, <laughs> that's, that's exactly it. Oh, goodness. You know what? This has been so much fun, Jeff. I I just can't thank you enough for doing this on the uh, podcast today. And uh, I just want to wish you uh, all the very best going forward and, uh, and lots of happiness and uh you know, good luck with everything you decide to do as far as music and life in general is concerned. Oh, thank you very much, Lyle. And like I say, thanks for thanks for reaching out. Um, I'm sure that there's, you know, given the time, I'm sure there's lots of things that I've missed or glossed over. But um, I, if you ever, you know, if you're ever looking to to have a repeat or a, a redo, um, I'd be I'd be more than happy to sit down and and chat at at great length with you again. You know what? That is awesome. I appreciate that so much, Jeff, and. Uh, and uh, that's good to know. And, and once again, thank you so much for joining me today. All right. Well, take care. And uh, as I as I often say in, in the very, very few shows that I have done at the end, we'll see you around the bend.